Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros. Welcome to Episode 19 of the Channel Journeys Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It's great to have you here. My name is Rob Spee. I am the host and founder of Channel Journeys Consulting, where I'm helping emerging technology companies avoid the growth ceiling by creating powerful partner ecosystems. We talked about the growth ceiling last week with Sunir Shah, the founder of SaaS Connect. We spoke about partnerships, and why they're so important for the success of SaaS companies. This week, my guest is Bob Moore, the successful co-founder and CEO of RJ Metrics, which he sold to Magento. Bob is now on his second SaaS startup. It's called Crossbeam, and he's on a mission to make partnerships even more productive. There are two great sides to today's podcast. You're going to get a channel lesson and a lesson in launching a new product or service. So first, you're going to hear from Bob and how he's solving the partner prisoner's dilemma. It's the all-too-familiar situation where your vendor reps and partner reps don't want to share account information, which isn't very productive. You're also going to hear one of the key lessons that Bob learned at RJ Metrics around product market fit, something that all entrepreneurs need to be looking at or anyone that's creating a new product or service. And he's applying that lesson at Crossbeam. You know, I like to learn about both the professional and personal journeys of my guests on the show. And today's guest, Bob, he's got a pretty interesting hobby that really teaches him to be quick on his feet. So we'll catch that towards the end of the show. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, Bob, good afternoon. Welcome to Channel Journeys. Hey, great to be here, Rob. Hey, good to have you. Where are we finding you today? Up in Philly? I am in Philadelphia, PA, yes. And is that where you grew up? It is. I grew up in Southern New Jersey, which sounds like it might be far away, but it's really not. It's, it's right over the Delaware River, maybe 20 minutes from here. But Philadelphia proper has been my home since 2011. Okay, excellent. And so we got a lot to talk about. I met you out at the SAS Connect event hosted by Sunir Shah, who I interviewed in my last podcast, and was very intrigued by what you are doing and also very intrigued by what you have done. You've got an interesting and very successful history, I would say, journey as an entrepreneur. So want to touch on the companies that you've already founded and that were acquired. But first, let's touch on what you're currently doing, which is Crossbeam. And that's how I met you. So give us a quick overview of what you're doing. Absolutely. So Crossbeam is designed to help companies that are partnered with each other bring more data into their conversations. You know, we'll talk a bit about my past businesses, but when I was running them, there was this problem that I ran into in every context, regardless of what the company was, regardless of whether it was the startup that I ran or the, the bigger enterprises that acquired them, there would very frequently be what we came to describe as the prisoner's dilemma problem around data, which is it's shocking how hard it is to answer very simple questions in the context of your partnerships. Like, how many customers do we have in common and who are they? Or are my sales reps selling to any of the same people that your sales reps are selling to right now? The challenge in answering those questions is that you can't draw a Venn diagram unless you have both of the circles that you need to overlap, which means if I want to know how many customers we have in common, either I need to give you my full customer list or you need to give me yours. Or if I want to know if my reps are selling to anybody that your reps are selling to, 
either you need to be able to log into my CRM or I need to be able to log into yours. Increasingly in a world of data privacy and security, those kinds of data exchanges are just total non-starters for companies and rightfully so. So Crossbeam was designed to be the solution to that. And what we end up doing is serving as like a data escrow service that sits in between companies. Crossbeam has a secure SOC 2 GDPR compliant relationship with both companies. And we provide an environment where you can actually combine the data, find the overlap, and never have to worry about the underlying raw data that doesn't overlap being exposed. And that just unlocks a whole new world of use cases around go-to-market collaboration with partners, around analytics and attribution for partners, and a whole long tail of other things as well. So for those who aren't familiar with The Prisoner's Dilemma, which you shared in a fun presentation, give us that quick story of what that's all about. Yeah, so The Prisoner's Dilemma is this game theory problem that was envisioned in the early part of the 20th century by kind of the, the founders of game theory, among them John Nash, who was portrayed by Russell Crowe in The Beautiful Mind. And it's this really interesting problem, which is imagine that you've just been arrested for bank robbery and you had an accomplice and say the accomplice's name was Richard and they've taken you both and put you in separate rooms and they're questioning you at the same time. And you know a few things to be true. You know that if you turn in Richard and you confess, but you blame it all on him and he keeps his mouth shut and doesn't blame you at all, then you can walk away scot-free, but Richard is going to get thrown in jail for 10 years. Richard's going to get a really long sentence. And if you keep your mouth shut and Richard rats on you, then Richard's going to walk free and you're going to go to jail. for But in these scenarios where you both keep your mouth shut, you are both only going to go to jail for, for two years on a technicality. So that's your ideal world. But if you both rat on each other, there's basically no benefit. You're both going to go to jail for a really long time. It's, you know, eight years or so. Apiece. So if you draw out this, you can kind of draw a matrix, you know, do you defect or does Richard defect? And you get this nice little two-by-two matrix. And what it says is, logically, if you have all this data in front of you, obviously, you should both just keep your mouth shut. You should cooperate rather than defect. And in that cooperation mode, you win big time and everybody's in their their best possible outcome. And certainly you as, as a group are. But here's the problem. If you look at just you acting in your own best interest, you will never cooperate. Because if you know for sure that Richard is going to defect. Well, if you cooperate, then you do 10 years, you get thrown under the bus by Richard. And if you know for sure that Richard's going to cooperate, well, if you cooperate, you do two years. But if you throw Richard under the bus, you're going to walk away. So in your own just totally rational best interest mind, there's never a scenario where you don't defect. And the same is true for Richard. So even though when you zoom out, you can say there's an obvious right answer. We should both cooperate with each other. What happens in practicality, and they do studies of this, and they actually put people in a fictional scenario like this and have them decide, everybody always defects. And it means that the sum of your prison terms add up to you know 16 or 18 years instead of the four that it could have been, because there's not a level of confidence and transparency around what the other person is going to do with that cooperation. So When you map that back to partnerships, what you find is that you're in the same exact situation when you're trying to say, how many customers do we have in common? Because your options are to cooperate and share your data or defect and be protective of your data and don't expose it. And you have the same exact matrix, which is it's logical that you should both want to cooperate. You should trust each other. You should draw the Venn diagrams and you have all this wealth of new knowledge that you can act on. But nobody does it because in the absence of 
absolute certainty of what the other party is going to do, they cannot and should not trust it. And therefore, they always defect. And because of that, nobody shares data. And we're left in you know, the stone ages in terms of data-driven decisions in the partnership world, while every other department in SAS has, has moved forward and moved beyond it. I loved it when you presented this at SAS Connect. I was just cracking up because it is so classic, this partner-prisoner's dilemma. And I mean, how many sales reps have I worked with who don't want to share that data with a partner? They hold on to it. <laughs> yeah, it's really amazing. that I try to judge if my talk is going well by how many bobbing heads you can see kind of out of the crowd. And I think that part of the talk just resonated with so many people that are in this partnership role because it really is... This is a day-to-day occurrence. It's not an annoyance. It's a way of life. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's pretty ridiculous when you think about it. So, Bob, you experienced this in your former companies or the companies that acquired you. Did you also do some market testing of this, this theory and your assessment of the problem? Oh, absolutely. So, and to be transparent, you know, when I exited my last company, I had a, an Evernote file that had 50 different startup ideas in it, and Crossbeam was one of them. It's not that I had this this beautiful vision that I've been like perfectly dreaming of going after for the last decade. It's that when brought to market and tested and sized up against where there might be demand and an opportunity to tackle the technology problem in a unique and innovative way, that really was the thing that resulted in Crossbeam winning. Because when brought forward, it wasn't that this was you know, a, a little annoyance or a challenge that, that people saw once in a while. It was that there is an entire universe of people that have influence and are extremely important in the org chart, whether it's in a mid-market company or a large enterprise, that have been left behind from a technology standpoint. And they've watched the SaaS revolution that has come to, to sales and marketing and people ops and customer success and finance and engineering and product all of them over the last decade or two have had a wave of software as a service products show up that have completely disrupted the workflows that exist, the data that's available, and the way in which the people in those roles and those departments are measured. And you look at what's going on in partnerships, and the best thing that we have is PRM tools that look the same as they did 20 years ago, except maybe they're delivered through the through the cloud. And The big reason why partnerships are last is because it's the one department in the organization where the way you create value is by creating leverage for all the other departments. And you do that by interacting with folks that are outside of your organization, not inside. You don't live in your silo that is just the CRM system for you. You live in your CRM system and that of all your partners. So you really couldn't create a SaaS tool to change the way partner success is done until all the other departments had gotten to a point of maturity in terms of the adoption of, of SaaS tools in those areas. And now, now we're finally there and we have the tech that supports it. So you know, we're excited to be blazing that trail. So before we dive a little bit deeper into Crossbeam, let's step back, sort of earlier success that you had. You worked in VC, you were in venture capital, it looks like. And then at some point you decided you probably had an Evernote list of all kinds of ideas. And one of them was RJ Metrics. Take us back then and, and how that got going. Yeah. Lessons in great timing. That is sarcastic and you'll see why in a second. So yeah, if you look at my resume, yes, it says something about me working for a venture capital firm 2006 to 2008. I actually was really lucky coming out of college. I was able to go work on the investment team at Insight Venture Partners in New York, which is an amazing firm that 
is kind of a mid-market growth equity firm that also does some really impressive venture deals with, you know, very successful earlier stage companies, but it has a lot of flexibility. My job there, I was the most junior person you could possibly imagine. So I take no credit for deals. I wasn't a venture capital partner or anything close to it. My job was to pick up the phone and call CEOs and try to learn about their companies and find businesses that fit the investment criteria for Insight, meaning they were growing fast, not burning a ton of capital, and we're in the verticals that we focus on, which is really software and, and software-enabled technologies. And I did that for two years. And one of the things I experienced there was this process called due diligence that investors do when they're making a new investment. And due diligence is all about, once you've decided at a high level that a company's interesting, you really dig in. You dig into the data, you dig into the finances, to the people, and make sure that there aren't any red flags and that there is the opportunity is as real as it seems on paper. And I got involved in a lot of these due diligence processes in doing data analysis. And it seemed like after a while, there were some really repeatable things in the analysis that we would do. So we try to identify things like customer lifetime value and you know how that compared to the cost of acquiring a customer. Or we do this thing called cohort analysis, which is grouping customers by when they were acquired and seeing how long they stay on as customers and if they, in aggregate, end up increasing the amount of revenue they contribute due to contract growth or decreasing due to churn. And all this was fairly manual. It was done in SQL and Excel. And the idea for RJ Metrics came about when it seemed like there was an opportunity to build software that could actually make this repeatable. And if we could make it repeatable, then we could scale it and we could sell it very profitably. So my co-founder from RJ Metrics was a co-worker of mine from Insight, brilliant guy by the name of Jake Stein. And we left in early September 2008. We left our cushy venture capital jobs. And a couple of days later, Lehman Brothers collapsed. And the entire, the entire economy, particularly in and around financial services, and that included venture capital, kind of went into hibernation. And what that means when you're starting a new company is that you are not able to raise capital and you are forced into a world where you are really bootstrapping for, you know, for a good stretch there. So you know, we went from- Longer than you planned, I take it. Yeah, longer than we planned for sure. So RJ Metrics then, you know, we set out on this mission to inspire and empower data-driven people and to build a product that would help companies be able to analyze and understand their own data in a way that led them to smarter decisions. And we started out, we left New York. We were in New York at the time, came down to the Philly area, partially because we had roots there and we knew we could live more affordably. And we really just were kind of grinding it out. And between 2008 and 2012, we just slow and steady built this profitable, nice little engine that could business in, in Philly that you know got into the seven figures of revenue and, and had, you know, I think between 10 and 20 employees and was just kind of you know, organically healthily growing. And then the economy started coming back and a lot of the markets that we served ended up thriving, especially e-commerce. So e-commerce went from being very sleepy in that era to having a new wave of innovation. If you think about the, you know, the companies in that next generation commerce, like the everybody from the dollar shave clubs to the Caspers to the MeUndies to, you know, every flash sale site that came when that was a wave. We we had a lot of that business and because of that, we were able to kind of ride this wave. And in short order, between 2012 and 2014, we raised about $25 million of venture capital for RJ Metrics and grew the team to, at its peak, it was about 150 people. And then ultimately, it was acquired by Magento in 2016. And we kind of became the 
in-house analytics platform that was the de facto analytics tool for Magento merchants. That's a great story. What gave you the grit, I would call it, because I'm just I'm reading a book called Grit. <laughs> and it talks about entrepreneurs and having that interest and that passion and that perseverance to stick it out. Because a lot of people would have quit. They would have said, you know, this this is too tough. The, the economy collapsed. I, I've got to go back and get a, a real job. You know, this was fun, but I'm just going to cash it in and, and move on. Yeah, I think there's a constant mathematical formula going on there that I convinced myself was rational, although I think I may have juked the stats a little bit along the way, which is, you know, if we're able to get to a point where we're done with with RJ metrics or with whatever your venture is, and we look back on it and we do the math, there's a couple of metrics that you can calculate. You know, how much salary would you have had at, at your old job versus how much you walked away with here net net? And that's a piece of it. But then there's this other intangible piece, which is what is that experience worth in terms of your ability to do more different things that are exciting and your ability to live the life that you know has the minimum amount of regret associated with it. And that's it. I think it's Jeff Bezos has really coined that term, the regret minimization framework, which is at the end of the day, how do I ensure that I do not live a life that, that has regrets in it? And you know, there's what you do as a business is kind of small and petty compared to a lot of the things that, you know, life is really about, but it's one of them. And in doing the math on RJ, I think the thing that kept us going was even if we had a year that went by where we didn't draw any salaries and we went from zero customers to four customers, and it was kind of a little bit of a head scratcher, like, have we really made the right move here? I think what we could always say was we unquestionably learned more at a more rapid pace than we would have in any other environment. And that is going to maximize optionality in the future. And if we're lucky enough that we have an outcome one day where we end up having made more money than we would have if we stayed in the old gig, then great, that's icing on the cake. But the way that we were weighting those components made it okay with us delaying that gratification because we got to get the personal enrichment and the advancement in our own journeys as we wanted to see them. And that's really what our, our utility function was weighted heavily in that way. And that's what had us keep going. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Jeff Bezos because the author of this book, she mentions him. In fact, she refers to a website. I think it's noregrets.com. Uh-huh. Are you familiar with I'm that? Not, no, I'm not. No. What is it? No. So you got to try yeah. that. I think that's what it is and see where that takes you. So right. I'll, I'll let Mysterious. our listeners try that too. Uh, sounds good. I'll be <laughs> <laughs> a mysterious link, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that's a great story. So you you were acquired by Magento. You went to work for them for a little while. And then what happened? There was a spinoff of a portion of the company? Yeah, get ready to be very confused. So we, part of the Magento deal. So, and to be clear, you know, summarizing that RJ Metric story makes it sound like all like ticker tape parades and, and happy days. It was a rough ride there. It, at a lot of the chapters there, both in the early days when we were, figuring things out. The growth period was fun, but there's like this aftermath to the growth period where things catch up with you. And for us, what we ended up figuring out about that business is that we were really, really good in e-commerce and not good in other areas. And I think a lot of our thesis around raising all that capital was, let's take the model we developed for e-commerce and stretch that out and bring it to software as a service companies. Let's bring it to gaming companies. Let's bring it to education tech companies and all these other verticals. And it just kind of fell flat and was not 
the right tool for the job and the infrastructure wasn't really like set up in the most compatible way for those industries. So we ended up, we actually did layoffs in early 2016, right before the sale, just because we had oversized at, at RJ Metrics. So from that peak 150 people, you know, we laid about 25 people off, kind of restructured the sales team. And it all coincided with selling the company and kind of getting it into a position where it could be acquired. But it was a rough ride. But one of the things in that period that happened was we kind of split our technology into two products. So there was the analysis product, which is all the dashboards and the front end things that allow you to get the insights out. But then there were all of the guts of the product in the back end that you could almost call the plumbing that allowed us to pull data in from it eventually got up to 50 or so different sources where we could potentially say, we'll pull your data in from your Magento store or from your Stripe billing processor, or from your Trello project management software, or from your QuickBooks finance. And we built all these connectors. And when we were getting acquired by Magento, it became evident that Magento was most interested in using the RJ Metrics technology to help Magento merchants, which meant the data that mattered was Magento data. So we had this whole layer of our technology that had already been separated out. It was like a really clean cut division of the tech that was all about data plumbing and all about all these data sources that were just never going to get used in the context of Magento. So as one of the negotiating chips in talking about the acquisition, we were able to retain ownership of that second product, which at the time was called RJ Metrics Pipeline, and be able to run that as a separate business after the acquisition. And it probably added a, you know, a few hundred pages and a bunch of legal billable hours to the definitive docs of doing that deal, but it ended up very much being worth it. And when we sold to Magento, this is another great reason to have a co-founder when you start one of these businesses, because I went to Magento full-time as part of the deal. So to fulfill the earnout there and the other requirements, I ended up in-house. Awesome team, learned a lot. But Jake, my co-founder, we were able to keep him available and he slotted in as the CEO of what we then called Stitch, which was the rebranding of RJ Metrics Pipeline. So Stitch ran in parallel for this two-year period. I was at Magento and Jake was running and building Stitch. And that business grew really rapidly. You know, we basically helped people get their data out of all their various SaaS tools and dropped into their data warehouses. So it's data pipelines for the analytics use case. And there's a massive amount of demand for that. Every company in the world that's operating online and uses cloud-based services needs it to do their analytics. And we rapidly got up to the point where we had about 1,000 customers on that platform. And around the same time that I started Crossbeam, we were fortunate enough to sell Stitch to this great company named Talend, which is a data integration company that's publicly traded and really helps people solve these, these kind of data infrastructure problems at a, at a big enterprise scale. So... We kind of had this two-hitter. It looks like I started two companies and had two acquisitions, but the real narrative is that I sold the same company twice. It's kind of what it boils down to. But you know, each unique and interesting in their own ways. But Crossbeam is a brand new, clean slate, totally new business that's that's fresh out of the gate here. And is Jake a co-founder in this one as well? So Jake is now doing at Talent what I did at Magento, which is he's got obligations to, and he loves it there. And they're just a fantastic company that is, is growing the team in Philly and like couldn't have more great things to say about them. And Jake is on that team now. So Jake is the, I believe it's the SVP of Stitch at Talent. So he's a strategic advisor to Crossbeam and is definitely involved in, you know, my own thinking through the process, but he's not a, he's not a co-founder. Okay. Do you have a co-founder? I sure do. 
his name's Buck Ryan. In addition to having the coolest name ever, he is also one of the greatest engineers and architects I've, I've ever met. He is one of the people that was on the earlier side of the engineering team at RJ Metrics and played a really big role in our DevOps and scaling environments there and actually did a little bit of work for Stitch as well along the way. And fortunately, when I was starting Crossbeam, he was a free agent. And we always got along and kind of synced up and, you know, we, we hit the ground running and haven't looked back on teaming up to get Crossbeam built. Okay, excellent. What role, if any, did the channel play in those days with RJ Metrics and Stitch? Did you have a channel? Yeah, so at RJ, hardly at all. And then at Stitch, very much so, which was a, a really interesting transition. And right in the middle, by the way, while I was at Magento, very much so. The Magento channel is a massively important part of, of that business. And that is comes as no surprise. They've got a, a global SI ecosystem that's got thousands of, of amazing SIs in it. They also have a an ISV network. So kind of the, the premier partner network that exists of people that have their, their compatible complementary technology tools hooked into Magento is pretty significant. And getting to see that firsthand was actually probably the best possible case study in where there was opportunity to really influence a meaningful, tangible amount of revenue dollars. You know, Magento is a business that is now very much a cloud company. They're now part of Adobe, of course, and is very much a cloud company, but they weren't always. And because of the generation of software companies they started out in, I think they were able to tap into a lot of the sales motions around channel that honestly, a lot of SaaS companies these days are, are kind of missing out on because SaaS is a bit of a different beast than the traditional license and maintenance software model that is much more conducive to having these SI relationships because you've got these big upfront payments. SIs have business models that are very different than SaaS companies because you can't get valued at, at 10 times revenue or something like that when you exit. So you want to make sure you're optimizing for profitability and cash and efficiency around headcount. And that means that you, you're able to sell very well alongside big dollar deals, but it's a little bit more of a challenging structural you know, question when it comes to actually selling alongside people that are collecting month to month. I wouldn't be surprised if Sunir talked about this on his episode of uh, this podcast last episode. It was a big part of it. Yeah, a big part of it was the, that challenge. Yeah, so I'll spare, he does a better job than I do talking about those mechanics, but they're relevant here. So what ends up happening is that, you know, if you compare somebody like a Magento to somebody like an RJ Metrics, which was a pure play SaaS month-to-month revenue business, we struggled at RJ to have any kind of cha- true traditional channel in the go-to-market sense where we have resellers or we have SIs because there just wasn't a lot of action for them to pick up. You know, we were striving to be as self-serve as possible and we were not charging a huge amount of money. So for someone to pay an SI 50 grand to get RJ Metrics up and running only to turn around and pay RJ Metrics itself $500 a month just was like a non, you know, it didn't make sense. At Stitch, though, what we learned was Stitch was an enabling technology where we fit into a stack of technology tools. And that was where we could see some of these SIs start to make sense, where they would combine, I'm going to bring you Stitch and Amazon Redshift and Looker. I'm going to get that entire stack set up for you. And that's where you start to see like, okay, this is a real, this is a true like system integrator in the literal sense of that SI acronym where they're going to integrate these disparate things and you don't mind paying them a a pretty penny to do it. But across the board there, the observation from SaaS is that what is replacing the legacy channel there is these technology partner programs. And the maturity of the API economy took, you know, in the same way that what used to be easy got hard in the SI and reseller side of the universe, 
What used to be hard has gotten easy in the technology partner and ISV universe because building a technology integration to someone else's product, which used to be a let's hire you know Accenture and spend a million dollars or, or something and, and get this project done, it is, hey, we have a REST API, you have a REST API, let's write a little script that is going to sync data between the two. And all the infrastructure that supports that is heavily enabled by these, these giant cloud platforms like AWS and GCP. And their off-the-shelf technology can make sure that this stuff works and, and has really good uptime. So the universe of interconnectivity between products has exploded in the last decade, even more so in the last handful of years. And if you look at how important channel historically has been to revenue, what I think we've seen across these businesses is this shift from the traditional reseller SI model as dominating the way in which third parties influence revenue for a business. And it's transitioned its way over to now we have all these third party relationships that are underpinned by technology integrations. And how to extract that kind of revenue influence from that world is the question at hand. And that's where that prisoner's dilemma really starts to get in the way. And that's where Crossbeam starts to really, the customers that we have that are just having Crossbeam knock it out of the park for them right now are ones that have partners that have some kind of tech integration, but then they're leveraging that compatibility to, to find co-selling and co-marketing motions that you know create force multipliers for the rest of their go-to-market programs. Yeah, interesting. So I think Crossbeam would apply to just about any partner, mm-hmm. any vendor with a channel. I mean, that partner prisoner dilemma applies everywhere. But are you kind of narrowing your focus on SaaS companies? Right now, yes. So if you look at our customer base, I'd say it's 100% of them are at least cloud enabled, I would say. There's a couple of reasons for that, but they all boil down to the fact that it's the lowest hanging fruit for us. The use case is very real. The companies are very innovative and there's not a lot of, you know, we don't start to run into these crossing the chasm problems. They are the early adopter class. Even once, you know, we've got publicly traded companies that are in the midst of onboarding right now. So, you know, they, they tend to have good procurement processes that we can get past from an infosec standpoint. And it's got less to do with scale and more to do with tech stack and, you know, what tools they're using as sources of truth around this data and how motivated they are to use emerging technologies to find new ways to win in their markets. Yeah. So your story really makes sense, though, kind of the progression analytics and then the, the data component of that, of how do you access different data sources, integrate those data sources. Now you're leveraging that at Crossbeam. What kind of business lessons have you learned in your earlier endeavors that you think, well, mistakes you don't want to avoid or you want to avoid this time or, you know, along those lines? I could... Take this answer a bunch of different ways, but I guess if I zoom out the as much as possible, I think the top thing that's on my mind certainly these days is just not being intellectually honest about product market fit. That's I think that is number one with a bullet in terms of what matters with starting these companies. And I think it's product market fit, just for those that might not be familiar with the concept, is you know, you can you can build an awesome product that, that does a lot of cool things and you can identify a market that might be a really, really big market to go after. But where you find opportunity in a startup is at the intersection of those things. And we can all think of products that somebody built that were really fantastic and innovative, but nobody wanted them. There was no market for them, despite how beautiful and elegant they were. And you can think of enormous markets that seem like they have tremendous potential, but the practicality of building a technology solution that actually works and delivers value to that market might, might be unrealistic. But again, you know, I'm in the business of Venn diagrams now, right? This is product market fit is the 
the Venn diagram between those two things. And whether there's a tiny sliver there or there's a really significant chunk that overlaps, that's your addressable market, your true addressable market with, with your startup. And you want to make sure that's big. You want to make sure it starts with a B. And you know, when, when you're swinging the bat, particularly as a, someone that's going to raise venture capital, that is really the assessment that you end up doing. So I think it's really easy to be delusional and see a sliver and think it's a big fat chunk. Or see a big fat chunk and think it's a billion dollar market when in reality, you know, it's two overlapping circles that are that are each tiny in and of themselves. And you have to really, really spend time and energy in hand-to-hand relationships with your clients and with your market to make sure that what you're hearing with your ear to the ground is really genuine interest that translates into here's a path to creating economic value for this audience. That path is going to lead us to be able to collect revenue. And by the way, there are so many more people out there like these people with this kind of use cases that we can we can scale it in a way that really works. And at any step along the way there, you can kind of catch yourself lying to yourself. And I, the reason I kind of saying that over and over again is because I think we did that at RJ Metrics. If you remember the story where you know we raised money on that business saying, hey, we've clobbered e-commerce, we've done great. And we're going to be able to take this thing out to SaaS, to gaming, to education tech, to all these other verticals. And the reality is we didn't have product market fit in those other verticals. We had a product that we were going to try and take. We had markets that we knew were big and existent, but they didn't overlap at all. Or what they overlapped with was a very thin sliver as compared to in e-commerce where we had this really significant, well-evidenced product market fit. And you know, we had all these directional arguments we could make, but what we failed to do at RJ Metrics in trying to go after those new markets was invest the time up front to really go ask the hard questions and hear a no when we were told no. You know, our optimism and vision got in the way of getting an honest answer about where the opportunity was there. And I think we probably raised more money than we needed to and wasted more money than we needed to in, in the course of finding our outcome there because of it. So I've got my antenna up on that front in a really big way. So in testing this product market fit, which is a hugely important concept, how are you doing that? You're going out and interviewing potential customers and not that they're just interested, but they're actually going to pay for it. Sure. Yeah. So Crossbeam is interesting because we have one of the other reasons I love this business is that it grows through network effects. So if you think about how Crossbeam works, if you and I want to compare our customer bases, you and I both need to be using Crossbeam, which means for me running Crossbeam in these early days, I've got a big task on my hands because Anytime I want to close one client, I actually need to close at least two simultaneously. We, we call it landing two jets side by side on the same runway at the same time. Like It's not easy, but it gets done. We get it done. We put up with that overhead because in the long term, when you end up with a critical mass of companies on the platform, the moat that that digs is incredibly strong and incredibly powerful. And it, the ability to create more value for your customer becomes inherently stronger than any other competitor could have. And really the growth engine of the company becomes usage of the product. And when you think about products that customers really love, they very often tend to have these kind of network effect type relationships. It, it behaves like a social network in a lot of ways. And there's not a lot of social network style growth mechanics in B2B. Outside of LinkedIn, it's, it's hard to name one that truly has dynamics like, like Crossbeam. So that's a great thing about Crossbeam, but it makes measuring product market fit you know, in some ways easier, in some ways harder. One of the easier things is that if you can't get people excited enough that they're willing to recommend it to their partners, then 
the thing will never take off and it'll be self-evident. You can't fool yourself into thinking people like this. You think about the classic net promoter score question. Would you recommend this tool to a friend or colleague? Well, we're literally asking people to actually put their money where their mouth is and recommend this tool to a friend or colleague or else it won't work. So if it's being recommended, then that's got to be the equivalent of a net promoter score. 10 net promoter score is almost nonsensical for us because we, we don't need to ask. We can see it in the usage of the product and, and actually measure it. So what we do, and we've just started adopting this, there's Raul was the CEO of Superhuman. It's an email client. He also started a company called Reported that got acquired by LinkedIn. And he's got an article in the first round review recently about quantifying product market fit and good, you know, good methodology for that. And it's actually so simple to be brilliant. He asks all of his customers, how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use this product? You got three answer choices, not disappointed, somewhat disappointed, or very disappointed. His thesis is that if you can't get to 40% of people saying very disappointed, then you don't have product market fit yet. And where that 40% comes from, he's got a couple of references, and I think that Paul Graham is involved in some way. But it's a really interesting way to really just ask kind of point blank. It's easy and unoffensive to say somewhat like, okay, you're not going to you know, disappoint me or anything by, by saying that. To say very really makes a statement. It speaks to your, your core underlying, like this goes beyond my relationship with Bob. You know, this is actually my use of the product. I'd be very disappointed. So we've started using that metric. We're actually in the midst of running our first survey ever right now. So I don't know where it lands, but we, we sure are going to pay close attention when we get that number in to see where it is. So anyway, long-winded answer, but it's a combination of qualitative and quantitative. And it's, it's somewhat unique in Crossbeam because of those network effect mechanics. Do you know yet what role the channel will play in your own company's growth and the growth of Crossbeam? Yeah, this gets super meta. I do anticipate having a channel and I do anticipate that consisting of both go-to-market channel partners and technology partners. On the technology partner side, there's a lot of places where we can pull data from and push data to that are extremely logical. And there's a lot of actions that people likely want to take because of what they've learned inside of Crossbeam. It's not within the scope of my vision for us to become a a marketing automation platform or a platform that that sends emails out or you know facilitates some of these traditional go-to-market sales enablement actions. I think we really are about being the network, being the source of intelligence and providing enablement to those other tools. So if you think about what those other tools might be, there's a whole universe of these, this class of sales enablement and marketing automation and, and CRM solutions and frankly, PRM solutions because... Yeah, PRMs, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, we're really we're not going after that PRM market. We're we're not interested in in you know disrupting the folks that are there. I think we're disrupt we're interested in changing the conversation about what partner success means and kind of the completeness of the tech stack there. So they hopefully will will become allies of ours as, as Crossbeam grows. And, and all of those I, I think fit into that ISV world. So you can see how that whole ecosystem could evolve. On the channel side, you know, we've we've got folks like yourself that are, you know very, very experienced and intelligent and in the business of helping people make better decisions around how to structure their channel businesses, on the, particularly on the go-to-market side. And we think that Crossbeam can be a big part of how they introduce technology, implement technology, and create value in those situations. It's early days for that because our initial, you know, by the way, Crossbeam launched all of three months ago, uh, almost exactly three months ago. So, you know, we're still early days, but We've got the benefit of a really experienced team that's been able to move quickly. And I would hope that by the end of this year, you know, we've got dedicated folks that are spending energy on developing that side of the market. But we think it's there. 
And I think there are a fairly large universe of, you know, SI type profile folks that hopefully we can get into their, their utility belt. Yeah. Well, I think you're going to be hugely successful because you are solving a real problem. I think there's huge product market fit and you've got the background, you've got the experience and a lot of lessons learned. So it's going to be a lot of fun watching your progress as it grows. So one last question on the personal front, do you have any personal hobbies or adventures of things you like to do outside of all of your entrepreneurial work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think if I didn't, I would have been thrown in an institution at this point. There's probably the number one thing for me is is improv comedy. So I'm a member of a house team at this improv theater here in Philly called the Philly Improv Theater. And I do performances in a few shows over at another theater in Philly called Good Good Comedy. They're both awesome comedy theaters that do shows six or seven nights a week here in town. And it really, you know, they take all different forms. The one at Good Good Comedy is a comedy freestyle rap battle competition that I enter every couple of months. At Philly Improv Theater, it is traditional long form improvised theater that is kind of in the in the style of Upright Citizens Brigade or, or you know, some of those Second City or other theaters that you might be more familiar with. And it is extremely fun. And I think scratches itches in parts of my brain that don't always necessarily get stimulated in my day job, but that I think actually translate really well into some of the skills needed to be effective and stay engaged and pay attention in the right ways in that job. I think I've learned more about how to listen from doing improv than I have from any experience I've had in any professional setting before. Like, it is so, so critically important to being successful on the improv stage. And I think those skills have snuck their way into the way I operate in business. And I think it's been a major source of personal development, just being able to really listen, literally, but also listen, read the room, read the you know body language and the, the facial cues and the tonal expressions of people who are trying to tell you something without telling you something. And that's like, I don't know where else to learn that skill set, but improv sure, sure drives it home quick. That's wild. Where did you get the itch to even try improv? You know, I when I first moved to Philly, I was working on RJ Metrics and I was kind of like, I was single and in a big city that I hadn't lived in before. And it was honestly just like a, you know, I think we all have these moments in our, our lives where it's like, yeah, you know, I got to gotta put myself out there and just go like have a thing that is, you know, a social thing I do. And some people join a join the community kickball team. Some people start brewing their own beer. And I took an improv class and it just kind of clicked and I, I stuck with it. Man, that is so cool. I actually tried it once. I was living in Houston when I was single and uh, signed up for an improv class. It scared the crap out of me. <laughs> well, yeah, that really, I, you know, when I say it teaches you how to do X, Y, Z like nothing else can, it's because bombing is so mortifying. Like, and I've been, we, with Big Baby, that's my team at Philly Improv Theater. You know, we've probably done certainly over 100 shows, probably coming up on 200 shows. And we only perform every couple of months now. It's not a regular weekly thing, but in our heyday, we were every single week doing a show. And sometimes there's more people on stage than there are in the audience. And sometimes the audience is full and nobody's laughing. And I don't know which is worse, but having something not work just sticks with you for days after. And you end up kind of deconstructing and analyzing. And it's always your own fault. And the, where, that, where that comes from is failure to listen and adapt and be intellectually honest and genuinely respond. And those are the things that 
you know, create that emotional connection with the audience, even if they take you into crazy town sometimes in terms of the scene work. And that's like the Pavlovian effects of do these things wrong and you will be publicly embarrassed and you feel very uncomfortable. It's like, it's pretty damn powerful. <laughs> well, good for you. Another great example of true grit to survive that tough crowd, that tough environment. Well, Bob, it's... <laughs> It's been a lot of fun chatting with you, hearing your story, hearing all about Crossbeam. Wish you tons of success and uh, look forward to seeing you at a, a future event. Cool. Thank you so much, Rob. It's uh, great to chat at length and hope to do it again sometime. All right. Excellent. Thanks again. Cheers. Thanks. Hey, guys, this is Rob again. Thanks for listening. That was Bob Moore, CEO and co-founder of Crossbeam. The big takeaway on today's show is that partnerships are built on trust and one of the biggest tests of that trust is the sharing of account information. And Bob and his team at Crossbeam, they've come up with a really innovative way for companies to share account and sales data with their partners, and that allows for more automated account mapping and a much more productive partnership. I really love his comment, too, about finding the intersection between the product idea and the market. And that intersection is really your true addressable market, and he's looking for big overlap, billion-dollar big. That's awesome. Oh, also, I mentioned Jeff Bezos' website. It's not noregrets.com. It's actually relentless.com. So try that out, relentless.com. As always, you're going to find my show takeaways, show notes, resource links on my website at channeljourneys.com backslash CJ19. If you enjoyed this show, go into iTunes and leave a rating and review. And if you didn't enjoy it, well, you don't have to leave a review or rating. Just send me a note at rob at channeljourneys.com. I'd love to hear whether you liked it or not. Just send me your feedback. That would be fantastic. Be sure to tune in next week. I may just have something new and different for you. Until then, make some great partnerships, share data, collaborate, and have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.